You're listening to Hope for Today Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining in this virtual space. We believe that as you listen, Jesus will minister to you right where you are. So open up your mind and your heart to what the Word would say to you today. Thank you for joining us. And remember, Jesus is our hope for today. In Luke 20, you know, we're looking to a part of Scripture where Jesus has entered. He has come um, riding on a donkey. People have been singing and saying, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And he rides the colt, the donkey that's never been, been ridden before. He's going to accomplish something that has never yet, to this point, been accomplished. That Messiah has arrived on the scene and he's en route to the cross. Because as the law would say, without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. And so along the way, he would proclaim and teach about the kingdom of God and what it's truly supposed to be like, not the ways in which it's been fractured along the way or misrepresented along the way. And so in Luke 20, Jesus continues to teach, to instruct with deliberate care to those who are in clear opposition also. And so in Luke 20, verse 1, it says, One day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of a human origin? And they discussed amongst themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. Remember that part. They are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. A secondary title for this would be on whose authority do you serve? You know, when you look at this passage, Jesus is having a conversation. You have to appreciate our loving Father and our, our, just like our Savior, he's willing to listen when people ask questions. He didn't cast them out of his sight, start declaring, you must listen to me. But he hears their questions that are poised. And we can clearly see that those in opposition to Christ, the scribes, the chief priests, the religious leaders, they're seeking to subvert his authority and agency. If they could get his words just twisted up enough, they would have proof. They're looking for heresy so that they could kill him. And so they're looking to, to trip him up, to subvert his authority. And what's interesting is when you look at when they say, on whose authority are you doing all these things? Remember, he's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. 
He's doing all the things that have been prophesied about the Messiah to come. And yet in the midst of all this, they challenge his authority. Did you know that in the Jewish law, an authorized representative, a person who acted on behalf of their sender, was sent with the full backing force of the one who sent them? So if they were to say, well, surely, yeah, John the Baptist, he was sent from heaven. If they were to acknowledge that, they would acknowledge who Jesus was sent by and would have put all issues to bed. But they weren't willing to do that, were they? They were challenging him. They weren't willing at this point in time to recognize his authority as coming king, prophet, and even high priest. You know, when we look to this season on the, the Christian calendar as we approach Palm Sunday and the importance of this season, it's not unlike the time of Jesus where people question the validity of God's word. And in Jesus' time, they weren't ready to receive him as the sent one. They were really looking for someone entirely different, someone in whom they thought the deliverer, the Messiah, would look like. And perhaps as you're looking at this passage of Scripture, you'd say, well, why exactly did the religious leaders oppose Jesus in the first place? Why did they feel threatened? Look at verse 47. It says, Every day that Jesus was teaching in the temple, the priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they couldn't find a way because of the people. The people were captivated. They were being transformed by what Jesus was teaching and saying. And so they felt threatened. And so for a little bit of a background, let's look at the scribes and the chief leaders for a moment. The scribes, I found this interesting, they date all the way back to 450 B.C. 450 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, these scribes uh, were originally trained writers, educated, highly educated people for that fact, transcribing the law of God, and they were the readers in the synagogue. So uh, like many churches and places today, before maybe a minister or a member of the clergy would share, someone would come up and read a passage of Scripture before the message. This would be part of the role. But somewhere along the time, when Jesus arrived, they went from trained writers and transcribers to now being trusted interpreters and teachers of God's law. Really um, putting themselves in that place of position in many respects that God hadn't done so. There's no direct correlation of these scribes with the Levitical priesthood, those in whom God had established as priests. And yet in many ways they established this from, for themselves, moving to this place of legal, uh, documental authority in, in Judaism to being the, the forefront people of, of teaching capacity. And then we have the Pharisees. So we have the, the scribes, and we have the Pharisees, a Jewish party that arrived around 150 B.C. 150 B.C. And so within the early time of Judaism, they're exercising the strict reverence to the Mosaic law. Strict. Strict as you could imagine. Even the Apostle Paul was a member of their order saying that we, uh, you know, when he was comparing himself to the other apostles, said he would live in strict obedience to the law. But by 135 AD, they also became included as one of the teachers, those, the rabbis. 
And I found this interesting, digging a little further about Pharisees. Coming from the Aramaic, the word Pharisee means to separate, divide, and distinguish. Separate, divide, and distinguish. But somewhere along the way, they went from a place of a reverence in the Lord, you know, proclaiming, Lord, it's only in you that I am free and my life has purpose, to somehow putting themselves on center stage. They lost their way. They went from being custodians, pointing people and directing people in the ways of the Lord and worship of him, to making it all about themselves. Hey, look what I'm doing, walking around the street corners. Jesus says, watch out for those guys wearing the long robes, loving to be in places of precision or uh, prestige and of titles. They had lost their way. They lost their way. And so here Jesus, we see he's welcoming their question very carefully, maybe you could even say calculated, But in Matthew 23, Jesus affirmed their place in history. He says this in Matthew 23, 2 to 4. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. He's not saying what they're teaching is wrong. He's saying they don't practice it themselves. They're saying one thing and doing another They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them, expecting all these things to be fulfilled in the people, but they're lacking themselves. And so you can, in understanding this, now understanding why Jesus is approaching them in such a way. He knows that they've already set in their heart they're going to deny him either way. Dividing, separating. There's something about that in the New Covenant, isn't there? Second Timothy, we're told in 2 verse 15, the Apostle Paul, remember, who was a member of the Pharisees, he exhorted Timothy the essential importance of dividing the word of truth, to correctly teach it. He says this to young Timothy, he says, Be diligent, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth, and avoiding irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godliness. Godlessness. So he's well aware of what happened to his own group, his own party that started off well and after so many years got off the path. And so when Jesus references in verses 1 and 2, when he's speaking to the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, those are the people that he's addressing. So he doesn't doesn't have a bone to to pick with them per se. He understands their history, but he's not focused on just casting them out. And yet in the midst of everything that Jesus did and how calmly he addressed them, they were still poised and determined to kill him. In verse 48, they could not find a way to do it, a way to kill him, because the people were captivated by what they had heard. You know, in today's world, I was telling the worship team before we started today, I've always wondered in reading scripture when it mentions those who would fall away or lose the, you know, their way along the path, how does that really happen? 
If you're invested in, and, and you desire your heart is to worship the Lord like David, turning him into repentance, even when you mess up, how does one fall away? And this interaction is showing us how easy and quickly it can, it can happen when it becomes about yourself. Maybe even the level of prestige and the ways in which you've come to an understanding of God. You know, I went to a, uh, a teaching time. It's like a, a teaching conference yesterday of a systematic theology course. And you get people together from all different, you know, walks of life. Some have their doctorates and different degrees and other professionals. Some are teachers, some are pastors, others are professors. You get everybody in the room and as you start to ask questions, it's, a, it's amazing the knowledge in the room. The depth of understanding. But you can also discern when it's become more about heady things than heart. A true worship and desire to be transformed by the living God. Here, some way again, along the way, the Pharisees were no longer receptive to the purpose of their priesthood. And yet what we can appreciate as we continue on our passage here that Jesus knew that their, uh, their obstinate position against him would serve him in going to the cross. Matthew 16, verse 21, he says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. Don't you love that nothing is outside the purview and, and vision of God? In Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, nothing is outside of them, of their knowing and their foreknowledge. They're aware of all these things, and yet Jesus was poised to welcome them into his fold. Had they come and said, like some of the people this religious order did, when they recognized, like Nicodemus, who Jesus was, he welcomed them with open arms. And I couldn't help but be introspect at that very point of being poised to welcome those who asked difficult questions. You know, part of that course yesterday, there were some really interesting questions that were raised. And sometimes when someone asks a question you think everyone should know, at first thought you're thinking, well, you should know this. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Especially when you start getting in matters where somewhere along the line some have believed that hell doesn't exist. It's a very popular teaching today that hell doesn't exist that God would never send anyone there. But the very understanding, if you understand the system, that we put ourselves there out of willful disobedience to what God said from the very beginning. But just like all have died in Adam, all are made alive in Christ through faith. But here, the Pharisees were still all about doing it themselves, checking all the boxes themselves. And so they've denied the Christ, the blessed King who comes in the name of Lord. They've denied his, how he's operating in the area of prophecy and proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand and near. Repent. But they couldn't recognize him. But thank God the crowds could. You know, it's amazing, I think Ian said this a few times at our, our men's group, he'd say, it's wonderful when the Lord works in spite of us. 
It's amazing that when people speak, and maybe they're not even under the agency of the Lord, but God, the scripture says, he works in all different kinds of people to draw people unto himself. The crowds recognize who Jesus was. We're told in Luke 7, 16, after he had um, rose a, a, a young man from the, from the dead, he says this in verse 16, then fear came over everyone and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us, God God has visited his people. God has visited his people. And so here and today, when we see God moving and living and, living and active in our lives, we can say he's visited with us. When you have something maybe an inoperable issue in your body, and the doctors say there's nothing else that can be done for you, and then you go back for another scan before surgery happens, and it's gone, they don't understand how it happened. All they can say was well, an act of God. It's a miracle. The crowds were able to take stock. They recognized who he was. Maybe for some, they only recognized him as a great prophet. But others we see here as Jesus entered the city, it says, blessed the king who comes in the name of the Lord. His authority is certain because of what they had seen. We're told by Peter one of the followers of Christ, he said this in 2 Peter 1.19. We also have a prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus emptied himself and came to the earth, in humbling himself, he laid aside his attributes. Omnipresent. All-knowing. All-powerful. But when he was baptized by the Holy Spirit, he was baptized with power. So he was still fully God and fully man in operation. And he prophesied before this interaction, he prophesied regarding the temple. As he came in, you know, we all know it as he, as he flipped the tables and said, my house will be a house of prayer. He spoke and said, not one stone in this temple will be left unturned. And he was prophesying of events that were about to take place. Forty years after Jesus gave those words, the temple would be destroyed by Roman soldiers. Look what he says here in, in verse 43. For the days will come on you when your enemies will surround you, they will crush you, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Even Jeremiah said, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Before Jesus went to the cross, says that the temple would be torn down and rebuilt in three days. And so here you can understand with all these prophecies that have been declared about the Messiah and Jesus is checking all the boxes, if you will, you can understand why the Pharisees who were devoutly opposed to him, why they could not affirm who John the Baptist was and his agency. If they did, they would be affirming Jesus Christ as Messiah. He would then subvert them and their man-made authority 
They didn't like that. And you know, today you look in the church, a lot of places and, and leaders, and it, it, it keeps us leaders humble, where they've made it about themselves. They've said, yeah, you know what? There's parts in the word here that no longer sit well with me, so we're going to rewrite it. We're going to create our own, our own booklet, and we're going we're to turn a blind eye to the word of truth, to what feels comfortable to us. And they're led by emotions. How many of you know how bad it is just to be led by emotions? But John the Baptist, like Jesus, who spoke and knew John well, John the Baptist said this of the Christ, and we looked at this last week. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was able to recognize who Christ was. The crowd was able to recognize who he was. Other leaders of the religious factions were able to recognize who he was. And those who did, the Bible says, is credited unto them as righteousness. Jesus was setting people's hearts on fire for him. Hearts on fire for him. Remember what John also said about Jesus. He said, I will baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm, not a, I'm unworthy to untie the straps of his sandals. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with Fire. A lot of times we only stay there and say, well, he's going to baptize me with fire to witness. You know, praise God, I'm all these giftings and activations, and it's yes and amen. Every promise of the Lord is yes and amen, but it's also so much more than that. It's even deeper than that, if you will, because he sets our hearts to beat for the things of God. And so here, like a true prophet, but also Savior, he's turning the people towards him to restore them in right relationship. And so he's giving them this opportunity to recognize who he is. And it's no different from today when, when he calls and when he, and he tugs on our hearts, when we give our life to him in faith. The Bible says not only is it credited us as righteousness, but our inner man connects with our outer man. Our outer man is renewed so that that, was, that which is on the outward is transformed to reflect that, reflect that inner self of the Spirit. And this is something I, I appreciate hearing time and time again, a reminder that we're a daily renovation project. There's regular maintenance going on. When you give your life to Christ, that's, that's finished. You're secure in the palm of his hand, but he's continued to do this inner work in your life. I've heard a speaker say once, I can't remember who it was, but they said, don't misunderstand this, that if Jesus was to come and call for you today, he's not coming with a squeegee to just do a last-minute touch-up before you can be with him for eternity. The work that he did is finished. It is complete in totality. But when we look now with New Testament or New Covenant goggles, when we look at this part of Scripture, we can understand the heart of Christ's message. Those who turn to him, there's times of refreshing, and he's going to transform the way that you look at life and how you look at the Father. And so when he was in the temple, he says in verse 45, he went into the temple and began to throw those who were selling out. And he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching the temple and the priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people were looking for a way 
to kill him. And as I got to this part in preparation for today, I asked the, I asked the Lord, I asked the Holy Spirit, what are the takeaway points? And there's aspects in which I looked at personally for myself, but I believe corporately, it's not only important that we recognize him, but we don't resist what Jesus is bringing attention to in our life. If we recognize him and everything that he's done, we should recognize him in all things, not just the things, and I said it many times, that give us warm fuzzies. And if we recognize his authority over our lives, we will worship him with both our lips and our conduct. This is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders had lost touch with. Ephesians 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this as I, I begin to wrap up. He says it so well. A man who once was so religious and strict, and it was all about, you know, the, the pedigree that he had. He says this in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. Just think about that for a moment. We live in the world where people say there's, there's no such thing as the Lord's anger. He's not gonna punish anybody. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses, you were saved by grace. And he raised us up with him and seated us in him in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming days and ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ. For you are saved by grace through faith that is not from yourselves, but is the gift of God, not from works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared ahead for us to do. Prepared in advance for us to do. Do you recognize yourself in this passage of scripture? Do you recognize the work that he's done in your life? Do you recognize the grace that's been poured out over you? I recognize the grace in my own life. Thankful that there's no need of last minute touches before I meet Jesus Christ one day. That that is certain and it's assured. Amen? And here the Apostle Paul, in understanding this interaction the Pharisees had, as he encouraged the Ephesians, in addition to what he had just said, says, therefore, knowing all of this, put away lying. Speak the truth, each one to his own neighbor, because we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, if he is to do honest work, with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. 
It's my desire to not be like the religious leaders who resisted the Lord and gave a foothold for the enemy to use them, to circumvent the living God who came in the flesh, but to do as even the Apostle Paul says, to live and work honestly in this age. And you know what that entails? It says, not lying. So a lot of times on the public social scale, there's been a lot of funky stuff happening in, in the community of faith. And you have to be ready to be truthful when, when people ask you pointed questions like those who came to the Christ. And if they ask you, and I'm, I'm gonna allow you to fill in the blanks, but they ask you, is it right for a believer to conduct themselves in such a dot, 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 dot? Be prepared to answer truthfully. Understand the grace that you've received. The, the days of the past are gone and you're a new man. You're a new woman. You're no longer defined by those areas. Don't, don't conform to the clubs and social clubs of today. The parties that are represented today only be attached to Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, I'll tell you right now, as I said to the leaders of the, uh, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, when we associate with them, if they ever win awry and according to the word of God, we're not sticking with you. Just because you're a big, you know, group of adherents of the faith, if you go awry and start making it about yourself and start twisting scripture, we can't follow. But somewhere along the way, and you can't say all of them because there were some, as I've already said, Nicodemus and others, there were those in which their eyes were opened. But I think just as the crowd was captivated by the Lord, perhaps the religious leaders of that party were captivated by one another. And they didn't know how to go against the flow. They didn't know how to go against the party that established itself against the Lord. Perhaps they didn't have the boldness. Perhaps they didn't have the courage or, or recognizing. Whatever those issues were, let's not be like one of them. We can glean from them. We can learn from them. That's the point of Scripture. As we look back, we can learn. We can glean. And we can grow. That's what training in righteousness is all about. It's not making you more, more righteous so that you're secure in Christ. We've already, we've already uh, you know, put that to bed. But it's about the training and knowing and living in the ways in which we are to conduct ourselves. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that even in preparation, I desire to, to study and show myself approved, correctly dividing your word of truth. And, and Lord, I thank you that even as I speak, that Lord, your spirit, which teaches each of us the anointing that we have received, Lord, that you will allow that which is to be heard and planted in our spirit would be planted and that would, it would grow. And Lord, the things, Lord, that perhaps are not of you, Lord, it would be jettisoned from our thought life and from our heart this afternoon. Lord, I thank you for this interaction, your honest interaction with the religious leaders of the time when you walked the face of this earth. God, you were willing to listen 
and to hear the questions that were poised, even knowing what they were doing. You had a mission to accomplish. You knew all the events were going to take you along the path to Calvary so you could give your life for us. Lord, would you help us to give our life for you also? Would you strengthen us with courage and boldness to follow you, to be part of the crowd that believes and has faith in you in all things and to resist the crowd that wants to tear it down? And Lord, I thank you, your promise of your word, because we are your living temple in which you dwell by your spirit. That Lord, you will come after those who seek to destroy your temple. And so Lord, we entrust that to you. We know that that authority has been given to you and that you will judge. Thank you for Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you that Christ took everything that we deserved upon himself so that we can truly say it's only in you, Lord Jesus, that I am free. Everything that I hope to be is only possible in you, Lord Jesus.